Mark 6, 30 through 44. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found it, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the, open, on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. In the book Animal Farm, George Orwell tells the story of a group of farm animals who overthrow their human owner. And to be fair, this human owner had been using their labor to plow his fields, he had been selling their milk and eggs, and he had even been sending them to the slaughterhouse. And after their successful coup, after they kicked this farmer off the farm, the animals placed themselves in charge. And they set, they set out to create a farm that is a refuge for animals, a paradise for them, a place where animals are free and live under the belief that all animals are equal. However, as time goes on, the pigs of the farm take over the leadership of the farm. And they, they appropriate more and more authority. And they, they take this position of privilege. And by the end of the story, a small group of pigs are running the farm and treating the other animals in a way that is indistinguishable from the beginning of the story. If you know anything about the story, Animal Farm was written by George Orwell in the 1940s as a satirical allegory against the hypocrisy and abuses of power that he saw in Soviet Russia during the era of, of Stalinism. And Orwell, he rightly saw that the overthrow of the czar in Russia and the subsequent rise of communism left Russia no better and indeed far worse. And Orwell was zealous to prevent communism's further spread to other nations. And so he wrote this book. 
And that critique, the critique that Orwell makes against communism in, in Animal Farm, many, many people today would make that same critique against all institutions and all authority. What we see today in the massive influence of ideas like critical theory, cultural Marxism, nationalism, uh, and political tribalism, all of those ideas, really one of the core assumptions of those ideas is that all attempts to order society and exercise authority are motivated by a will to power, which basically just means whoever's in charge calls the shots and they enrich themselves, they put themselves in a place of privilege at, at the expense of everyone else. I want to be in charge because if I'm in charge, it's good for me and it's good for my people. So whether it's the patriarchy or the wealthy or the liberals or the conservatives or some other tribe or affinity group or political ideology, the assumption is that whoever is in a position of authority will use their authority to enrich and protect themselves and their constituents without any real regard for those outside their, outside their group. I want to be in charge so that me and mine are safe and happy. That's, that's the idea. I don't enjoy politics. I don't follow politics very closely, and I am not a political scholar. But I am a student of the Bible. And from that perspective, I can look at these conversations about political power and, and these conversations about the mistrust of authority, and, and I can say that I see some merit in those observations. I can appreciate these concerns about the misuse and abuse of power, the misuse and abuse of authority. I can point out the abusive, the abusive leadership of pagan kings like the, the Egyptian pharaohs or the Babylonian kings or the Roman Caesars. Or I can look at the corruption of wicked Jewish kings like Ahab or Rehoboam, in the Old Testament, or I can even look at the failure and sin of the righteous kings like David and Solomon. You can see this misuse of authority. You can see this abuse of power and understand the concern that people have. Or I can look at my own life. I can look at my own record as a man in authority, as, as a pastor, a husband, a dad, and I can personally testify that Jeremiah is right when he says in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Every person that, puts them, that finds themselves or puts themselves in a position of authority does so as a sinner, does so as a corrupt person, as a person who is going to use that power in unjust, unhealthy ways to some degree. I can see it in my life. I can see it when I look at the, at the political landscape. I can see it when I look at human history. The sermon series, you can see the title, 
is servant king. Week after week, we've looked at the evidence that Mark presents to support his argument that Jesus of Nazareth, a carpenter's son, a simple peasant from nowhere important who was executed by the Roman government, that Jesus is in fact the risen and reigning king of the universe. Mark declares, Jesus is king. And here, here in Mark 6, 30 through 44, the famous story of Jesus miraculously feeding the 5,000, it shouldn't be a surprise to us that Mark is presenting further evidence of Jesus' deity, the fact that Jesus is God, and, and Jesus' kingship, that Jesus is king. But in this story, Mark provides a critique of all worldly human attempts to hold and exercise authority. Jesus feeding the 5,000 is a critique of our use of authority, our use of power. And, and Mark shows us why having Jesus as king, having Jesus in authority over you, is far better, far better than any alternative. And, and it shows us, this passage shows us that Christians ought to model Christ's self-sacrificial leadership as a way to show people that we believe the gospel and to commend that gospel to others. So that idea in Animal Farm of whoever's in power is just going to use that power to enrich themselves, that's critiqued here by Jesus' example of the feeding of the 5,000. So Jesus' feeding, the first thing we're going to see is Jesus' feeding of the 5,000, it's yet another piece of evidence in Mark's gospel for the deity and kingship of Jesus. It's another argument that Jesus really is God and Jesus really is the king. Again and again, Mark offers evidence that Jesus is the divine son of God, that God himself came to live among men and women as a man. And this passage adds to that. So you know the basic elements of the story. Jesus feeding the 5,000 is one of the most famous stories in the Bible. Jesus has spent the day teaching this crowd. This crowd has followed him to a desolate place or a desert area. And he, so he's been teaching these people out in the wilderness. And at the end of the day, the disciples tell Jesus, okay, Jesus, we're done teaching. Go send the crowds away so that they can find food for themselves. And Jesus tells them, you feed them. And they say, well, we have no food. Well, bring me what you have. And so they bring Jesus five loaves of bread and two fish. And Jesus blesses the food, gives it, gives it to his disciples, and his disciples feed 5,000 men, plus however many women and children would have been in the crowd. And when they're done, that five lo those five loaves and two fish turn into 12 baskets. So here's a miracle. Here's a man feeding thousands of people with just a handful of food. So it's obvious that we're looking at a miracle here. But is it necessarily a sign of Jesus' divinity? So some scholars would argue that it's not. They would say this is Jesus 
doing a miracle by the power of God. This is Jesus as a man performing a miracle with, with the power that God gives him. So, so do we agree with them, or is this actually a picture that Jesus is God himself? So there's, there's two Old Testament stories that help us here. The first one is, is 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 42 through 44. So if you have your Bibles, go to 2 Kings chapter 4. This is the story of Elisha. 2 Kings 4, 42. A man came from Baal Shalishah, bringing the man of God, Elisha, bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley, and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, Give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, How can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, Give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, They shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. So Elisha takes 20 loaves of bread and feeds 100 men with those 20 loaves because the Lord tells him they shall eat and have some left. Next is the passage that Ashley read for us a few minutes ago, Exodus chapter 16. So you know the story of Exodus 16. There we have God providing quail and manna sends these birds and these frosted flakes to the people of Israel to feed this entire nation of Israel during their journey through the wilderness. Here's, Here's meat and here's bread for you. In both stories, you have a prophet, Elisha in 2 Kings and Moses in Exodus 16, saying that God is going to provide. Elisha says, thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. Moses, after the manna appears, says, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. Moses and Elisha, they're both saying, listen, God is the creator. God created and sustains the universe, and so God has the capacity to multiply a few loaves of bread to feed many, or to cause bread to fall like morning dew. Moses and Elisha are declaring this is what God is is doing. But now look at Mark 6. In Mark 6, you have the disciples bring Jesus five loaves and two fish. Jesus commands the crowd to sit down in groups. Jesus says a blessing. Jesus breaks the loaves and gives the loaves to the disciples to distribute. Jesus divides the two fish among them all. Jesus is not presenting himself as Elisha or Moses in in this story. Jesus is not merely a prophet proclaiming God's provision to the people. Jesus does not feed them and say, the Lord, thus says the Lord, you shall have enough food. Jesus is presenting himself as God. Jesus is the one providing for the people. 
Jesus does not appeal to God to provide. Jesus himself is God and he is providing. Jesus is causing the loaves to multiply. Jesus is causing the fish to multiply. Jesus is giving his disciples what they need to feed the people. Jesus is able to multiply these loaves and fish and to have more left over than they began with. So Mark here is he's saying, do you see? Do you understand what Jesus is doing and what it means about who he is? No one can create out of thin air but the creator himself. This Jesus, he's fully man, but he's also fully God. This is Yahweh in human form. This is the God who fed Israel, feeding his sheep. So we see that this is an example of Jesus' divinity and Jesus' kingship. But, but what, we, what we also see in this passage, Mark, Mark's always piling on this evidence that Jesus is, is God, the king. It's true here. It's been true in these earlier passages. It's going to be true in next week's passage when Jesus walks on water. But Mark is not repetitive or dull. His gospel is the shortest, densest, most briskly paced of the four gospel accounts. He, he trims all the fat from his story. It's immediately this happened, immediately this happened, immediately this happened. And so if, Jesus, if, if Mark is continually giving us more and more evidence, we know that each example of Jesus' divinity, each example of Jesus' kingship is unique and purposeful. Each passage contributes to this overall mosaic that, that Mark is crafting of Jesus. So what's happening here in Mark, it's not like sometimes on Facebook you'll see your friends. We went to the Black Hills this summer. Here's 200 pictures of it. Here's me standing in front of Mount Rushmore. Here's my wife standing in front of Mount Rushmore. Here's my kid standing in front of Mount Rushmore. Look, there's Mount Rushmore. Just picture after picture after picture. That Yeah, I get it. I see it. You went to the Black Hills. That's great. That's not what Mark is doing here. Mark is he's curating a beautiful gallery. Every picture in the gallery is intentional. Every picture in this gallery is providing a unique angle on who Jesus is to give us this full picture, this robust understanding of Jesus in his glory. So the the circumstances and details related to Jesus, this divine king miraculously feeding the 5,000, highlights that Jesus being the king is better by far than anyone else being the king. In this passage, the reason that Mark includes this passage is because he is giving evidence that the Christian gospel is the best gospel. The Christian good news is better news than anything else. That word gospel Christians did not invent that word. Christians are not the only ones that use that word. The the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they didn't coin this new term to talk about Jesus. 
That word gospel, the Greek word is euangelion, good news. That's a political term. That's a political phrase that the people in Jesus' day would have said, we've heard this before. We've heard about this word gospel. There's there's an inscription that was found in modern-day Turkey that comes from from the time of the Roman Empire. And that inscription says this. It says, here's the quote, the birthday of Augustus, so you know, Caesar Augustus, the birthday of Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of the gospel concerning him. So when a, when a Roman Caesar would come to power, these heralds would go out throughout the Roman Empire and they would proclaim the news that this guy is Caesar. Augustus is Caesar. Here's good news. Augustus is king. Here's good news. Julius is king. So this is that proclamation. There's an emperor in Rome. His name is Augustus. He is your Lord. He is in charge. He runs the show. He lives in the palace. Good news. Is it good news? Maybe for some, for those whom he favors, the people that are in Augustus's inner circle, it's good news for them that, that he's in charge. For others, it's bad news. It's the end of the line for them the end of their prosperity and influence. If you're an enemy of Caesar, you're going to be killed if he's in charge. And then for many, who cares? They live miles away from Rome. They they have no status. They have no uh, influence with the emperor. They have no access to him. They will... They will have no access, they have no access to the last emperor, they have no access to this emperor, their life isn't going to change at all. So who cares who's in the palace? That's always been true. Kings rise and fall. Nations, national boundaries are drawn and redrawn. Congressional districts are reshaped through gerrymandering. And we have no say over it. The last guy in the White House wore wore a red tie. The guy that's in the White House now wears a blue tie. I didn't know or have the ear of the last guy. I don't know the current guy, and I'm not going to probably know the next one either. So does it really change my life on a day-to-day basis? Is it really good news to me who's in the Oval Office? Think of that story, Animal Farm. They run off Farmer Jones. They kick Farmer Jones out of the farmhouse. But the group of pigs that end up in control leave the animals in no better condition than when they started. And then Mark comes along, and Mark proclaims the gospel. Mark 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark's gospeling 
Mark's proclamation of good news about Jesus is not unique. It's not the first time these people have heard an announcement about a king, a declaration that so-and-so is in charge. Okay, you've got a message about a king? We've heard this before. What makes Jesus utterly different from every other god and every other king is that he is different that he behaves differently as king. Jesus identifies himself as the same God. I'm the king, and I am the God who gave Israel manna in the wilderness. Think about, think about the experience of the Israelites in Exodus. They had been under the kingship of the Egyptian pharaoh. They were enslaved to Pharaoh. They had been brutally treated by by Pharaoh. They had been driven into the ground. They had been chewed up and spit out for generations to do Pharaoh's heavy lifting. That was the life of the Israelites. And Moses comes and proclaims to them the good news that Yahweh is their king and that they will leave Egypt and Pharaoh's dominion and come under Yahweh's authority. We we talk about Israel as being set free from Egypt, but in a very real sense, Israel is never free. They pass from Pharaoh's control to God's control. Pharaoh has been saying, these Israelites are my property. I own them. And then after they leave Egypt, Moses says in Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. God owns them. They are not Pharaohs anymore. They don't belong to Pharaoh, but they do belong to God. So in a very real sense, they pass from slavery to slavery. And life under Yahweh is exactly different than life under Pharaoh. They get to the desert. Think of the desolate place in Mark 6. You have Israel in the desert in Exodus 16, the crowds in the desert in Mark 6, and they are hungry. And they grumble that in Egypt, Pharaoh fed them. How quickly does Israel forget that they were fed at the expense of their freedom, at the expense of their dignity and at the cost of brutal mistreatment. So God shows them what life will be like with him in charge. You belong to me now, and what am I going to do with you? I'm going to feed you. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to provide for your needs. And so in Exodus 16, God gives Israel daily bread on their way to the land that he has promised them a land of green pasture and still water, a land flowing with milk and honey. So for these Israelites, life under Pharaoh was brutal. Life under the Lord is beautiful. Life under Pharaoh was death. Life under the Lord is grace and peace and joy. And now Jesus reveals in Mark 6 that that's him. That's what he is doing. 
He, in, he intends to treat those who come to him with the same care, the same affection, to provide for them in the same way. So in Mark 6, the crowds are in a desolate place. Jesus is there with his disciples for a retreat. Verse, verse 31, he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Jesus has been working hard. His disciples have been working hard. He says, come, come away with me to the wilderness for, for rest. And the crowds barge in. The crowds flood in and they, they, they invade Jesus's privacy. They demand attention and care. And how does Jesus respond to these bother, this bothersome crowd? Verse 34, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Jesus feeds them spiritually. Jesus nourishes their souls. And then Jesus miraculously feeds their bodies with a few loaves and fish. So, you can live under the good news of Caesar or a king like Herod. Remember last week? Here's, here's, a, here's a ruler that we're used to. Herod throws himself a drunken feast, indulges his flesh and his sinful desires, flatters his guests, and murders an innocent man. Humanity is used to leadership like that. Men and women for millennia have been trying to avoid or survive the barbarity and ugliness of evil kings and rulers who use their authority to enrich themselves, protect themselves and their own interests. But life under King Jesus is safe. Life under King Jesus is satisfying. It's life-giving. It's grace it's happy, it's beautiful. Jesus comes and fills up other people when they are hungry. Jesus serves other people when he is tired. Jesus has compassion on people who are bothering him. Jesus enriches those who come to him. I'm the king and I'm going to give to you. I'm not going to take from you. So Jesus is king, and it is the best possible news. There is no better gospel. Do not look for another one. Everyone, everyone here this morning is living under someone's good news, some things good news. You are hoping that if you devote yourself to someone or something, it will make you happy. What is your good news? Mine is Philippians 3, 7 through 9. I count everything as loss for the sake of Christ. I, I consider everything rubbish in order, that I may be, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, a righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's our good news. That, 
We serve a king who loves us, who fills us up. The Christian gospel is the best gospel. It's the best news. And so then finally, as, as we conclude, if we believe the gospel, we need to model the gospel in our leadership, in our authority. Christian leadership is modeled on the self-sacrificial example of Christ. It's done with the strength and the means that Jesus supplies. Christ-like leadership is one of the ways that we show that we believe the gospel, and it's one of the ways that we commend the gospel to others. So the disciples in this passage, the disciples are tired. Jesus invites them to rest, but the crowds demand otherwise. Jesus spends, Jesus leads them to spend the day serving. And Jesus tells them to feed the crowd, not to send them away. Jesus tells the disciples to bring what they have, to sit the people down, to feed them with the food he supplies. Christ gives to us so that we can give it away to others. Christ fills us up so that we can fill other people up. Christ sustains us so that we can support others. Christ pours himself out and calls us to pour ourselves out. And Christ always gives us what we need to do what he commands. Elders, this is our job description, isn't it? Let's feed this flock. Let's set Jesus before them. Let's see to it that they have the spiritual nourishment that they need. Husbands, nourish your wives spiritually and physically. Live with your wives in an understanding way. Love your wives. Fill them up as they sit under your authority as, as their husband. Make them glad. Parents, let's feed our kids spiritually and physically. May those under our care Whatever authority the Lord has given you, whether it's tiny or large, may those under our authority say, I'm so glad he or she led me to Jesus. I'm so glad, he, I'm so glad this person, my, my parent, my, my husband, my elder, my boss, I'm so glad that they poured themselves out so that I could flourish. It's easier for me to understand Jesus' tender care for me because of that person's tender care. Let's live under the good news that we have a king who loves us and feeds us. And then let's use whatever measure of authority we have to model that good news and commend it to others. Pray. Jesus, you are our good shepherd. We are sheep who need to be fed and Jesus, you have come to feed us. You have come to lead us to green pasture and quiet water, to restore our souls, to lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Help us to come under your tender care through faith in you. In, in your name we pray, amen.